Hey, before we launch in, I wanted to tell you real quick about an offer we're making for this holiday season only. It is the Big Self Enneagram Typing Package. It's an awesome opportunity to laser in on not only your type, but also your subtype. We offer a state-of-the-art test, a 20-page report, and we follow it up with a 90-minute typing interview. And then we even cross-compare your test results with a certified Enneagram expert. So check it out at bigselfschool.com backslash Enneagram typing package. It's 20% off our $500 typing package for December only. Just fill out the form at the bottom of the page. You could also go to bigselfschool.com and go to the four individuals link and you will find the typing package there. It's a 20% off discount. We wanted to celebrate the holidays with you in that way. Look forward to see you there. And now on to our program. Welcome to part three of three of our series in talking about the Enneagram types. We are now on the center of intelligence of head types. So if you're just now joining us, feel free to just hop in right here and now. But if you wanted to go back to part one of three with the body types, just go back a couple of episodes and you will find it there. We welcome you one way or another. On the very first one, um, I introduced a little bit about the Enneagram for a few moments, just talking about its history um, very briefly, but just overview type of stuff. So if you did want to go back for that, then I guess there would be a reason to do that. Uh, For each of them, each of these episodes, however, I do try to say one little aside before we get completely going. And for the head types in, in just today, what I wanted to share was is the idea that, you know, even when you have taken several steps in the direction of beginning to understand the Enneagram and honing in on your type, it's just really good to keep remembering that in the end, we are, there are parts of ourselves that inhabit any and all of these nine types. These are all possible personality expressions that find themselves being represented in ourselves even blindly, even like when we're not aware of them. And so in, first of all, the idea is that in listening and really, really trying to understand and know examples of each and every one of the types, we can better self-observe our own tendencies to be inhabiting any of these given points on the Enneagram map. But also, of course, the, the, you know, uh, another huge idea of learning about all of them is to learn about your friends and neighbors and your close associates and your your family and to be able to learn better how to discern their behaviors, the motivations behind their behaviors, have more compassion for them. Uh, but perhaps most importantly of all the things I just said is that we can easily begin to over-identify with our type. In the end, the idea here, and one of the most distinguishing characteristics of the Enneagram, of other typologies, is that 
we are trying to understand personality types, but understanding that that is not who we are in our truest nature, in our essence, when you kind of go behind the curtain a little bit of how we've constructed our responses to deal with and handle life from an early age. And then this, this ego shell that has sort of helped us get to wherever it is that we are at this point. All personality types work for a reason. That's why we're in them, that they they serve a purpose for us until we eventually begin to go like, okay, they're also the reason for the ways that we're struggling. There, there are patterns behind them that imprison us in the end. And so if we want to break free of these patterns, if we want to not be imprisoned or quite so imprisoned, we can begin to see what is ultimately not us. That's the idea. So whether or not you do identify primarily as a five, six, or seven, just remember, we are all in the end operating out of one of these types primarily. It's the primary way that our personality system works in the world. So let's not over-identify and get super excited about the fact that we may be overall ident- you know, uh, operating as a five, six, or seven. Let's recognize these patterns and yes, the natural strengths that seem to be operating behind them and the natural deficits and challenges that we also are faced with when operating primarily out of one of these. And then again, in the end, the the idea is of self-observation, which can lead to the growth of self-development. So with that brief aside, let's begin with fives. Fives, we've titled for our purposes here today in this series, coming out of my book, Shock Point, The Enneagram and Burnout and Stress is for fives, the walls that hold you inside. Traditionally, fives are called the observer and the classic Enneagram literature. Fives, you know, some essential characteristics right off the bat. Um, They can be hypersensitive, even while, you know, paradoxically communicating this kind of detachment. They are so they remember that is like they don't seem like they're sensitive, but they are really sensitive. In fact, these head types, the first of our three head types, they have a a relative indifference to praise or criticism or even necessarily the feelings of others. They seem to have a lack of warmth, often a lack of demonstrating affection toward others. They will talk at length about their intellectual pursuits or complicated problems, but they really will not want to talk about at length about any kind of personal um, pers- uh, personal issues, really, because uh, that's just when the boundary there is getting a little too encroached upon. They typically, you'll observe with fives that they will say little in meetings or in group situations, but they always do seem to be listening intently. And when called upon or or, or asked their opinion, 
they then may actually offer these deep insights or have these great critical thinking summary assessments. So, and, and I mean, they aren't necessarily always quiet, but they certainly, if they're like a new employee on the job, they will be not speaking a, a great deal until they feel like they have real command over the subject matter. Because even though they put on this facade of demonstrating competency through knowledge, they are really sensitive uh, inside. So they do have a tendency to close their door. A lot of, you know, it kind of varies with the subtype a little bit, but they do have a tendency to have physical proximity of boundaries, closing their door, shutting themselves off from outside interference. And they do, they are often now any of like a variety of types can be lone, lone wolf for different reasons, but fives especially do prefer to go it alone. They don't need others and they don't want others to need them. So there's a strong boundary, literal, metaphorical, psychological, emotional, big on the boundaries, hence the name, the walls that hold you inside. Uh, when they are in a good space and their batteries are nice and charged up, uh, they can be really fun, humorous, often self-deprecating, and their their humor that does tend to be that flavor that's kind of witty. It could be epigrammatic. In other words, like a, a brief summary assessment was just kind of like cuts to the core of uh, an insight or a revelation. And also you can, they, they have these similarly, these withering, uh, dry assessments of human behavior and motivations. Uh, so for all of those reasons, right, fives can be um, really fun and fascinating intellectuals to be around once you can kind of get them talking on subjects that they value or know a lot about. So the, the passion of fives, where we kind of begin with understanding the emotional underlay, no matter whether you're a heart, body, or head type, the passion is related to an emotion more than it is a mental fixation. And with the passion of fives, you could say that they, they miss the mark through their passion of avarice, avarice. Interesting, avarice, we kind of think of it as meaning greed, but avarice here is not meant uh, as the, the greed, you could say, that's typically associated with Ebenezer Scrooge in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Uh, this is being recorded right here in the holiday season, and that example comes to mind uh, rather, you know, as Chaucer famously captured in The Parson's Tale. Yes, I'm, I was an English major and did have to read the Canterbury Tales. And even as an English major, I didn't particularly like it. But, the, you know, that 14th century Middle English was was something else. And his insights there. And in The Parson's Tale from the Canterbury Tales, there's this quote, uh, Avarice consists not only of greed for land and chattels, but sometimes for learning and for glory. 
So there is this like hoarding in, but it's not necessarily just about greed. It is about this. I'm going to hold in my knowledge. And yeah, with some, some types, their aspiration could be, um, to aspire to great heights, but for some, it is just, uh, a tendency to hold in. So, and also I would say that, you know, if anger is an outward expression of greed or an assertive demandingness, avarice is almost, we can also think of it this way, the inverse of that. It's this holding in. It is this retentiveness. The grasping is is inward, as if they would lose themselves were they not able to hold on to their privacy. And, and it's almost like this experience of impending impoverishment. And if they can sort of train themselves to do without, then again, not has to be much demanded of them. And nor they're saying to the world, am I asking anything of you? So the way out of the castle keep and into a greater understanding of self and personality is through the virtue. Thank goodness there's always a virtue and a hope through all of these uh, passions. And this is through non-attachment. It's an interesting virtue, non-attachment, and can easily be confused for detachment. So in this respect, fives are open to, when they're doing non-attachment, they are open to giving and receiving through life's just natural flows and rhythms, not in holding everything pent up inside. And here's a couple of examples that we're so glad that they didn't. What if Einstein, who we believe was a five, had, what if he had never worked in the public sphere of ideas, had never shared his ideas, but kept himself locked up in an interior world? And what about Emily Dickinson from a century before that? What if Dickinson, who actually they say may have had a form of epilepsy and was fortunate to have family and friends with whom she could live, she did actually, in fact, have a pretty short, isolated life. But what if her over 1,800 poems had never been published or shared afterwards? But the virtue of non-attachment is the key to the passion of avarice. Fives can begin to see the fundamental difference between holding everything inside to letting go and being willing to receive as well as to give. Also, just learning to recognize that you need to connect with others in order to experience a fuller and more invigorating life experience. Connecting with emotions does not have to deplete you. It actually can connect you to a clearer and more pronounced sense of joy. How about that? Says this four heart type over here. But we, for all of these, well, there's no but. For each and every one of these types, the emphasis has been on how are, how is each given type reactive under stress. So as we have observed before about all the other types under stress, there can be a doubling down on their defining characteristics. 
Another way of putting it could even be that what makes for a real strength or a functional part of their personality becomes distorted because it is overdone or overvalued. And for fives, if we can boil it down to a single overriding issue, it would be their reluctance to engage with others. And this manifests itself as a walled off person, but it also means being emotionally distant and distracted, as well as lacking an ability to even communicate well with what they do know. Um, And an example comes to mind of like a teacher, you know, isn't a good teacher because he is so lost in the content itself that he doesn't even think about how the delivery of the information is a form of teaching as well. So they may make for great objective thinkers and they may make for clear thinking analysts, but sharing that information in a way that also communicates on a kind of emotional level, the importance of the given information that would be lacking often in fives. So especially for stressed fives or fives in this reactivity and being really in personality, there may be little expression of emotional intelligence. Also, stress will show up for a lot of fives as a low-level irritability. Sometimes fives stop right in the middle of the stress and they defend themselves from everyone's expectations and demands and they seek immediate retreat for as long as may be sustainable. Fives are also known to be able to live in this stress for long periods of time. In fact, fives as a rule can endure in personality where most types would just kind of wither away, you know, or end up making their needs or demands known. In fact, that reminds me that like fives actually rarely express direct anger. And then when they do, it's usually because others are encroaching on their boundaries or on one of the very few close relationships they have. So it's good for like other types. We've it's like nines. We've reminded anger isn't always bad. In fact, sometimes the expression of anger is simply a sign that you are feeling disrespected. And in some cases, the expression of anger for fives can be a good thing because it can engage them in emotion, which is one of the key tasks for their personal growth, especially when their emotion can be in the middle of the present moment and isn't something that they kind of stuff away and then go and think about and reflect on and feel later. That's another defining characteristics of fives is being detached from the present moment. For fives, I really like this um, this this King Midas illustration really uh, is memorable to me as an anecdote because like on its face, when you think about fives, there's really nothing wrong with this kind of renunciation of worldly things, with asking less of the world, or even of expressing, you know, wor- not expressing worldly needs, especially if this is all in an effort to be in touch with, a, say, a higher spiritual principle or some kind of ideal, some kind of big, important system and framework. But here's what happens in their wish for these riches 
of these highest ideals and ultimate pursuits, fives tend to disconnect from all that is human in themselves and others. And they end up breaking from the body, the heart, and then even from thinking itself in the idea of constantly striving, grasping, and becoming. So interestingly, King Midas, his magic touch, right, where he's, tur- he's able to turn everything into gold. That seems like a good thing at first, until his magic touch turns his daughter into gold, and he runs into what we could call this dehumanization of the ideal. He's idealized his daughter. Now she's gold. She's not even human. So similarly, this is how the five's pursuit of the extraordinary can result in impoverishment in the capacity to just value the ordinary. So other little common stress, I say little, it's a short list, common stressors for fives. We've already touched on a few things here, but they don't like surprises, especially a last minute task. We've made it pretty clear, I think by now that intrusion often of physical space or demands on their time as well in the form often of interruptions, very stressful to fives. People who want to get personal, when when they're forced to collaborate and people don't do what they say they will do on time, and also just any kind of unclear boundaries, including the unclear boundaries of like a structures uh, in a process or roles of other people or the expectations. So I guess you could say the inverse of that is w- with clarity, they are much, much more comfortable. So if you are a five or if you know one, but what five patterns within your personality Uh, system. It's not who you are, but ways to observe, to begin to make them more conscious, to begin to free yourself and have a little bit more self-awareness of these tendencies, which may not be as obvious to you, even if they are perhaps to others, is uh, pay attention to how you hoard information as well as your emotional availability from others. If there is no outlet, say, you know, like an example is like for a body of water, then the body of water becomes a cesspool. So by opening up the boundaries and letting everything you know and feel flow three freely through you, you will relax your tight fisted control. You will actually discover more freedom and not less And you will deepen in your relational joy and both in what you give and receive. Also, let yourself become more conscious of when you are shutting down emotionally. When you do reflect or take time to feel, ask yourself what leads you to run from your feelings. Why do you feel like it's it's not safe to be more open in the first place. And similar, similarly to that, become more conscious of when you are shutting down to your body. How can you reconnect with grounding yourself in the ordinary experience of movement? 
recognize, you know, in this way that all levels of experience are, are important from the transcendent to the ordinary. And I guess to that, to that point too, and a lot of us could hear this, but fives especially, are you willing to have a beginner's mind, truly have a very beginner's mind, even when you feel like you're an expert in all of these ways? And what would you learn from the humility of not being the expert at everything you discuss? Remember that virtue of non-attachment. Use your desire for knowledge in that functional personality of yours to learn all about what the passion of avarice really means. And once you've done that work, you can, you know, you can re-examine the theory of gentle moves to your four and six wings. We can discuss that kind of theory at another time. We do really discuss that when we work with clients in uh, growth processes. Um, wings are commonly misunderstood, but they are used to um, consciously direct your growth and gentle moves to one side or the other. And uh, anyway, the, I guess the last idea of clarification on the difference between, so what is non-attachment, as we've been emphasizing, is this idea of not hoarding and letting things move freely. It is not, to be clear, it is not detachment. Fives already detach, right? So non-attachment does not mean detachment. It actually means engaging with, but just not holding on to things as if they are yours and yours alone, that they are to be freely shared uh, and received. So my last question to you fives are, what are ways you can begin to break down your walls and begin to flow more freely? Okay. Sixes right in the middle sixes of our head types. So they must really be in their heads. <laughs> and our title for sixes, trusting without testing. Sixes traditionally in the classic Enneagram literature called the loyalist, which is a confusing title actually, because sometimes they depending on the subtype, they will buck up against authority and be quite the skeptic and anything but loyal. In the end, for sixes, it is all about authority and their relationship to authority. And they have different responses to how to be in relationship to authority. So some quick defining characteristics in personality of sixes. It is difficult for sixes to trust others, and therefore it's difficult to work with them or them with others until the others have passed an unspoken test. It's not often clear how you're passing this test, but the sixes just know. They also will be poking holes in all of your plans as a way to test the plan for just how strong they are. They don't mean to be contrarian. They aren't necessarily contrarian. It's just their tendency to really want to constantly look for uh, problems or issues or weaknesses in plans. 
They are analytical, as you might intuit from this already. They're analytical, especially when it comes to processes and thinking through plans and ideas. Uh, They think in terms of optimal scenarios and also worst case scenarios. They do, interestingly enough, tend to be straightforward and trustworthy. They also will credit others even when they are responsible for the work, often because they just are not comfortable with the attention being focused on them. And they can be innovative problem solvers, but they can also get mired down in fretting over all of the problems and possibilities. Sixes are usually engaged when they ask their and have room to ask their many questions. And they do, interestingly, they do tend to ask the right questions. So when conducted in a constructive way, this does lead to, and when there's room for this in the organization, when when you can see them as not necessarily being the negative nanny, It can lead to useful insights and then specific and actionable takeaways. But it may be hard sometimes just to pass their trust test and even know when this is happening and what what are the conditions for satisfaction, like when do you pass the test. But when and if you do, sixes will then be among your greatest allies. They are loyal. They are reliable and they can be persistent. They can be the people you can trust. All, all things, interestingly enough, that they're looking for in others. So the passion of sixes, fear is the passion for sixes. Now I will say, this is interesting, right? We've talked about a core central emotion for each of the centers of intelligence in each of these episodes. And it is anger for the body types and their relationship to anger, different responses to it. Sadness for the heart types, different different responses and relationship to sadness. And for the head types, it's fear. But there are different, each of them, each head type has these different um, uh, passions, of course. But for sixes, not only is it fear, this central operating emotion, but it's actually also their very, their, their passion, their issue to find a virtue to overcome. Similarly, the most similar example of this would be ones, which their passion is anger. And of course, again, that is the central operating emotion of all, all um, body types. So fear is the passion for sixes. And, you know, all types, of course, fear different things for different reasons. But the key to understanding fear for the six type is to understand that the way they anticipate and even project fears that aren't even necessarily real is much more where, where they're at. At face value, the passion, you know, it's usually a blind spot for, for any one of us types until you become more familiar with what the passion really means. And then through self-observation, notice how it shows up. Like, I will very briefly just mention that, you know, as a four, when I was first confronted with the um, passion of envy, I did not see it 
And in fact, I was like, I just didn't really buy it, so to speak. And it took more, not only intellectual, you know, understanding and definitions and, but it also took the practice of, okay, what, what is envy and how, how does it manifest? And then when I would observe my behaviors in day-to-day life, I began to see it and see it and see it. And then it became bigger and bigger and bigger for a period of time. Then you can begin to do something about it. And, you know, Shelly as a two with pride at first, pride does not seem like, uh, you know, the central operating processes of the two who's this helper. And then similarly, you begin to see it and you see it and see it. And so for sixes, they actually may not see their fear as fear. They may wonder why everyone else doesn't do what they do. Like pretty much all of us in personality without a lot of awareness of how these passions are operating within us, but they are always scanning the horizon for anticipated outcomes. And they may think this is just the way you need to operate in the world, especially if you're a good problem solver. But the real problem, however, is the constant anticipation of what might happen leads to a generalized anxiety. And it's hard to root out because it's hard to recognize the source since the source may not even exist, right? as anything other than a projection. So the six's constant vigilance makes them often very wound up, unable to relax. They may lack the confidence to push ahead in their personal or professional lives and kind of this constant hesitation or ambivalence. What's interesting about sixes is they will live up there in their heads in this fretting, 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 creating scenarios, constantly almost paralyzed, unable to really move forward until the very last minute when like the deadline is happening or when you, you have to like, you're about to crash the plane and it's the very last minute that you'll be able to like, you know, tip the nose back up. And then suddenly they will just take action and they'll quit the luxury, so to speak, of having the time to create what ifs. They will go into action. And there is this interesting paradox about them as well, that when you finally do have the crisis in an organization or a family, or maybe it's a personal one, that's when they are suddenly the most calm person in the room. And, you know, we can laugh about it you know, uh, because they can say like, yep, and we're so prepared because we're always thinking of the scenarios. So when they happen, we, we were like, yep, I told you so. But you just don't want to talk about, to me, it just seems like, yes, we all are suffering, but it is clear to me the way in which sixes can really stay stuck in these projecting of creating fears themselves. Uh, So, you know, for each of the distinct ways that the six subtypes may look, we're not talking about subtypes in this series, but it's the virtue of courage that does remain the same. The subtypes for sixes are quite different, but again, the virtue of courage remains the same. And so by becoming aware of the ways that fear takes over and functions actually not only within the head, but also in the heart and what it means to the body, 
Sixes can then begin to work on how they can throttle open the source of their courage. And so courage means moving forward even in the face of your fear. Not, you know, and I think, you know, sixes can recognize that just not everyone and everything needs to be viewed with a skeptical eye. And sometimes the tests that sixes put people through are far more stringent than they need to be. And sometimes sixes, even when they're more aware of this, more aware of them, they'll, they'll begin to recognize, I don't need to be doing this. People, this person is, I know, worthy of my trust. I don't need to be running them through some, you know, gauntlet of conscious or unconscious tests. And actually, sixes can then find when they loosen up their hold on, on this, that opportunities and possibilities that they never would have otherwise seen, they begin to open up. And I think this is really a critical component. Then they can begin to realize that the most trusted source, it's their authority, their own inner authority. Trusting themselves for sixes is the beginning for growth. Actually, as well as the end result of how they can step more courageously into their most authentic selves. So sixes in their reactivity under stress, as we emphasize in this series, you know, sixes have a special attachment to stress. They, they often feel like actually if they're not stressed, then they're just not being vigilant enough. So for these head types in stress, they can really shut down that prefrontal cortex, the, you know, that most recently evolved part of our brains that performs the higher cognition, the abstract thinking, the working memory, all those executive functions. Well, you know, <laughs> that's the part when you are in fear and it's like it's inhibiting you and your blood vessels are tightening. It impacts your ability to concentrate. You're, if, if you believe in the ability to multitask, it impacts your ability to multitask, to plan, to organize everything you effectively need to function in our basically our modern world of online activity, bringing up kids, navigating the workplace, all these are inhibited when your prefrontal cortex is inhibited and stressed. So for, you know, and actually for no other type could the function of the fear instinct be more clear than in the heads and personality structures of sixes whose, again, very passion is based on fear. And we talk about with fear, you can have a fight or flight kind of, there's also freeze. And in mammals, actually, most mammals lack what is called the ventral stream. And this means that they literally don't see you unless you're moving. I think this is pretty interesting. This is why in our evolutionary DNA, it actually pays to freeze when you walk up on a bear. It's hopefully turned the other way, but the ventral, the lack of a ventral stream. But the problem we face persistently today is that the very cause of the stress 
that you're experiencing as a six and that it keeps you for is in the prefrontal cortex. I think it's useful. We don't usually break down the components of the brain, but in this, this manner for these head types, it's kind of useful to know that that prefrontal cortex is so important and Hey, you need to get out of your stress so that you can function a little bit uh, better. <laughs> So common stressors for sixes also are just people in organizations who jump into action before thinking things through. Also people who aren't reliable. And when people in positions of authority abuse their power. And similarly, just to these other things, when they demand that decisions be made before they are ready to be made. So what can you do as your way out with courage, as you are addressing these constant, real and imagined sources of fear in your life? And honestly, handling the anxiety in a direct way can help. Talking about your anxiety is a huge help for sixes who live with a lot of anxiety. And working on, you know, when you're letting your mental center dominate, uh, you know, just staying in your head, you, well, we're not going to talk about arrow theory where I was going to talk about nines and threes arrows because there, but there is a way for you to get out of your body. I mean, get into your body, get out of your head, out of that anxiety frenzy, slow down, listen to your body's instinct, pull back, slow down, do something slow with your, um, with some kind of physical activity, like just walking. It doesn't have to be intense. Also, when you cut others out and as a result, might end up, you might be kind of seen as being difficult to work with. Ask yourself, how can you make yourself more open and receptive to what others who you may not know as well? How can you do that? How can you cut, bring up into consciousness? How am I being difficult? Even though, even though I don't mean to be and more receptive to what others who I may not know as well, what can they be trying to tell me. So those are sixes. And you would think that almost by contrast are sevens. We call sevens. Our title for them is a little of this, a little of that, a lot. Traditionally called the enthusiast. And sevens They may emphasize the positive data and with a little bit of self-awareness, they begin to see how much of their motivation is actually about avoidance. They may, you know, want to look at the shiny side of things and can't be bothered with anything that's going to bring them down. They are always looking for the exit doors in case they may start feeling limited or trapped. They also really like all head types, but they have a little bit of this rebellious streak in them. But it's especially with sevens, the reason I bring up the rebellious streak is that in this case, it's masked by this charm that you would never, at for, on face value, you would never think that this sunny side up person is being rebellious in a way. 
but they're they're masking their rebellion with charm, which is really another avoidance of confrontation. Interesting about the sevens, the passion of the seven, and this is why it's a little of this, a lot of a little of that, a lot, because on its face, you know, much like the passion of avarice for fives or lust for eights. If we take gluttony, which is what their passion is for sevens, it's gluttony. If we took it literally, you know, then it would basically, it means a preponderant love for food. And that, that just doesn't, and you know, and say like avarice seems to be like, it's, you're holding everything in like your Ebenezer Scrooge. And it's just greed, which it's not just greed or lust just seems to maybe for people we associate it with a sexual nature. It doesn't. It means a big, overwhelming desire for something. In some cases, it can be of a sexual nature, but it means anything. And with gluttony, it means much more than, you know, a little of this, a lot of that, just with food. It means with everything, and it's and so it's constant. It's frenzied. It's it's future seeking. What's next? What's next? What's next? This looks interesting. Let's do this for a little while. In fact, as one like brief example of this, like I remember coming across this in C.S. Lewis's The Screw Tape Letters, which you can't believe he published that thing in 1942. That book is 80 years old. That's incredible. The screw tape letters and the demon screw tape. And I believe it was the se- it's the 17th letter. He's writing to a student. The student is Wormwood, who's actively working on taking hold of the soul of the patient. And screw tape tells him that for a century, they have made great strides in getting humans to think of gluttony as this of delicacy, not of like as excess. In other words, people who run around focus on trying a little of this and a little of that as if it were some kind of virtue. All the while, they are totally consumed by trying the next thing and the next. So gluttony is similar to lust in its insatiable nature. But the difference is that gluttony tends to seek variety in its search for pleasure. Now, the glutton, you know, might stay with the same thing, but characteristically, they're dreamers, they're aspirants of the next thing and the next. They don't want the same thing, uh, but they tend to like, you know, the remote, the bizarre, adventure, surprise, keeping things really interesting. Actually, what is interesting, too, is that gluttony can be a little like envy in that it is seeking something outside that it dimly perceives it is lacking within. And the difference between the two is that envy has a pronounced awareness of the insufficiency, of the lacking of that is within. Whereas the gluttony is covering it up with this like false abundance, which actually you could even say is almost comparable to the pride of the two. So the virtue of this 
strange <laughs> to me. It's, I shouldn't say it's strange and cast an assessment on it. The virtue of uh, gluttony is sobriety, but it's this path toward like a little bit more seriousness and, and going toward contentment over pleasure. Now, I do think that that just hearing sobriety being your virtue, that is probably hard to accept at first, especially for like, hey, you know, I'm the life of the party. Everyone likes me at work. What are we talking about? What is this sobriety thing you're talking about? And look, I am not here to crash the sevens party. But what we're trying to help is this idea of just kind of, you know, reclaiming a little proportion and using maybe just the, the uh, right amount of energy to get a job done and responding just to what life is bringing you in the moment. So believe me, sobriety does not translate as have no fun. In fact, what it does mean is simply having a deeper satisfaction focusing on the one thing. Stick with an experience all the way to the end. And it means reducing this exaggerated need for stimulation and constant movement. You're not going to get trapped just by sticking with something. It could be a relationship in a lot of cases for, for sevens. So for sevens, who you may not like C is getting stressed very often. But actually, what's interesting, I don't think most people recognize in sevens or realize about sevens is that they are actually very hard on themselves. They just, and they tend to hide it really well. So they certainly do not tend to communicate their stress at first, unlike some types. But, you know, when they do become more acutely stressed, now, of course, it does show. Sevens, they tend to avoid the stress by doing something fun and getting distracted rather than deal with it. And they'll quicken the pace or they'll, they're, they're going to become a little less grounded and, and just not slowing down to listen to feedback or especially to face difficult realities, and so, you know, similar to sixes, sevens do have a lot of anxiety. And, you know, depending on the subtype, they, some might be more inclined to being aware of it. But sevens, when they're in stress, sometimes they just quicken their pace. They do more. They, they'll charm you more. They'll find more fun activities. And for a while, this may actually look like it will produce great results. But then they're carrying their anxiety with them a lot. So a lot of times, you know, we see this doubling down of personality under stress or in reactivity. And while this is also true for sevens, when the stress becomes more acute, we often actually see them acting out of character. They may become controlling, perfectionistic, difficult to work with, and they'll cut down on their communication. And they will also definitely seek the quickest possible exit if they don't sabotage and are asked to leave first. So anyway, some defining characteristics 
of sevens in personality, which we might have skipped over a bit at the very beginning, is they do like to make friends with everyone. And in fact, nearly everyone does tend to like them. Similar to what how-tos can do this, for, but for in different ways and with different motivations behind them. They will love talking about plans and rationalizing what they do over what they may be expected to do. They are definitely attracted to new opportunities and possibilities all the time. They are going to usually express positivity. They're going to be happy, upbeat, also easily bored in meetings or anything dull, anything heavy. They're going to be looking for the exit. And they're going to jump into new projects, new relationships that excite them without slowing them down. They do not want to, generally speaking, examine potential problems or self-assess. So you can see why their six wing could inform them in a lot of ways as well. Common stressors for sevens when people slow down, often due to overanalysis or pessimism. Any kind of confrontation, especially about what isn't going well or about a difficult situation, uh, when anyone tries to control or manage them, and certainly, you know, when people around them are morose or negative or too serious, they don't like doing things that are boring or over and over, things that feel like busy work. Uh, and also, actually, they don't tend to like being put in positions of authority because they have this really charming, um, amazing natural capacity to level the playing field and be very much, much less hierarchical. And so even if they, so for the people in authority, they tend to charm them and be very peer like and friendly like with the people in charge. And by contrast, they don't like being put above others uh, because it, it kind of it messes with that dynamic of being able to be the charmer and the fun person and hey can't we all just have a good time even while we're getting things done so type seven patterns to observe in order to make them more conscious and I really just have three things for sevens one is to ask yourself why it is so important to focus on the future all the time what is it about the current experiences you're having that you are avoiding? And then if you want to dig a little deeper, why you're avoiding? Also, why is it so terrible to have limits? Why, why do you run at this first sign of constraint? You know, those, your, your five friends really like limits. It gives them a lot of structure. What do fives in this way have to teach us? And perhaps most important of all is this avoidance of feelings. A lot of sevens are able to, in their, when they do feel stressed or anxious, they are able to find some patterns and structures to get them to do exercise and get them into their body. But still there is this gap and this avoidance of feelings. And in your like relentless pursuit of fun and positivity, do you ever stop to think what you're running from? You know, re really, regardless of our type, our emotions, and that's why our passions are related to our emotions. That's the foundation of telling us the truth. 
Emotions tell us the what that is going on inside. So for sevens, we don't talk a lot about arrow work, but we they do have an arrow pointing to five and, and one to one. But um, the, And those will ground sevens. Sevens, you need to be grounded more. But don't overlook the work of integrating all of your centers of intelligence in your life. So doing work on letting yourself be available to your feelings may be one of the biggest leaps in your growth and development. So this concludes our series on each of the nine types and how they deal in reactivity and stress. All of us have functional parts of our personalities that really serve us well. We may even be reluctant to necessarily want to create more awareness of and work on them. All the types have also paths to which with greater self-awareness, we can just take, begin to take little steps and little strides into relaxing these characteristics that do not have to define us. There's a lot of different tools and tips and tricks and different ways that we can work on our personality structures, but I hope that this series of podcasts has begun to help with just a few things to begin with this process of some self-observation, which can lead to some self-development. I guess a last thought to say about, you know, our personalities and without sometimes when we begin to go on this journey of self-development or growth, it's our, with it, it's our very personalities that sort of take over and begin to try to like with ones, you, they often try to do it perfectly. And sevens might be in this way attracted to, oh, this is, this is going to be fun and new and different. And let's try this. And, you know, we, so we all can like, so the more we can be aware of how these things are operating in us, the more that we can try to free ourselves from the strictures of these unconscious structures. And with that, this concludes our very last segment of this year of 2022. We hope that you've been enjoying season four. We're going to continue season four into the new year. And we wish you a happy new year. And we will see you on the other side of 2022.